This is part two of three of our conversations with Kathy Goldman. If you missed the first episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. These are not meant to be thorough histories, and I am not even close to being an expert on any of these topics. Just a confused and interested millennial looking to the past to find some answers for the future. This is The Inheritance Project. The FBI came for me at home, and my grandmother, who had arrived in the United States about eight years before or something like that, uh, she says to them, no, no speak English. And she read the New York Times every day. But she knew not to say anything. How can I tell this? I mean, this was not funny. It was really quite crazy, I must say. <laughs> it was a very bad period. It was the McCarthy years, or just before the McCarthy years. In 1951, Kathy was a 19-year-old film student. She was helping a friend cut together film for a documentary. Her friend had another appointment, so Kathy decided to wait for her there at the apartment till she returned. What happened is that I decided to take a day off from work, and I was about, I don't know, 18, 19, something like that. So I picked up a 8-millimeter uh, camera, and I spent the day just wandering around New York taking pictures. Just as I was, I was just waiting for her to come back when I could, uh, we could finish doing this stuff. And then I got attracted to the window because the kids were being released from school. So I, you know, went to the window and took some film. Not long after, there was a knock at the door and 15 armed federal agents waiting for her. They saw her, they saw the camera, and they saw reels and reels of film hanging on the walls. Unbeknownst to me, the place across the street was a factory that was making something that was a government, you know, controlled thing that nobody was supposed to see. And that's what they thought I was taking pictures of. And... The the two things that saved me was, one, that I was very young, and the fact that the camera I was using was so bad, so <laughs> inadequate for anybody that was doing anything like that. I am using the worst camera anybody could ever do. So uh, they, I got arrested, and I had lawyers, and they told me that I had to stay away from anything, you know, that was really less. So uh, I did. And I had a very nice year in many ways. She learned how to play canasta. Uh (laughs) (laughs) But it really was a very close call. I wonder if my kids remember that I told them that. Being accused of communism was not new for Kathy. She even warned me in our first interview that many had used those terms for her before. Raised by two Hungarian immigrants in the Bronx whose family had died in the Holocaust, she remembers much of her childhood was spent helping her comrades. For instance, people were getting evicted, and they would have a marshal come and put a lock on the door. And when the marshals left, the people who in the neighborhood 
came right out and snapped the lock and put their furniture back, and mostly that was the end of it. Uh, so you saw very early on that that you know that the, the community could take care of itself. Well, in some ways, so uh, hardly take care of itself, but also change things. Her mother was a columnist and humorist for the Hungarian National Newspaper, but she also founded and ran the first Hungarian women's magazine, which addressed not only Hungarian issues, but issues of equality and racism in the community. Same time as she was very funny, she was very serious writer. And see, her magazine, the first edition of that magazine, the front had pictures of black women who were laundry workers and with the cops beating them up because they were trying to form a union. Kathy remembers her mother's top hat, which she still has today. Her mother, who could not sing, would dress as a man with that top hat and headline shows at Hungarian fundraisers, lip-singing to great Hungarian hits and thrilling audiences who thought it was her singing there live. And half the audience would know that she couldn't sing, and the other half the audience would be busy shushing the other half of the audience that was working with <laughs> She eventually did that with a whole group of a typical Hungarian band. And this time it was, everybody was having instruments, and they looked like they were playing them. <laughs> so, you know, and the reason they had a place to go to was because the Hungarian group in the Bronx had built a really wonderful space with great kitchen and, of course, Hungarians were great cooks. You know, they really made a community because my father really settled here. My mother never did. She, first of all, she was always terrified that she was going to be deported. And when she was in her the early 70s, she finally agreed to go and get, you know, apply for a, a citizenship. Wow. I mean, it was... And it was terrible. They, she was afraid to leave the United States. They, she was afraid they would never let her back in. Uh, it, you know, I really understand what's going on with immigrants. It was my family. It's the yeah. same story. So for Kathy, helping those in your community was not charity or even communism. It was a way of life, a value system picking up where the government failed. And as I spoke more and more with Kathy, I started to realize that to her, maybe communism and capitalism were not all that different, but almost like two sides of the same coin, both strategies to accomplish the same goal of feeding, clothing, and taking care of the people, by different means, of course, but that it was foolish to think of one existing singularly without the other. In the 50s, her and her husband joined a group called Equal, run by her friend Ellen Lurie. The group focused on fixing the inequality of education in the city, and they had rebellious tactics. They even had a program where they would send white couples to rent apartments in the city and then pass the keys over to black families who couldn't rent them. And this work is how she met Ellen and eventually Evelina Antonetti, 
And that work eventually brought her to UBP. And after all that success and the success of the overhaul of PS149, she would be thrust into a job that she said anybody would be crazy to say yes to, the free summer meals program. For years, it had been money sitting unused for a new federal initiative called the Free Summer Meals Program. Its purpose was to continue the free lunch program through the summer so that children who relied on the school lunch as maybe their only meal of the day didn't go hungry during the summer. But organizing an infrastructure from scratch to feed every single school kid in New York City, the largest school district in the nation, well, that was a feat no one felt prepared to undertake. So the budget of $3 million went unused. It was a big fight to have this. And it was, in some ways, so obvious. But here we get a program, we knock ourselves out, we being everybody around the country. And the next thing we know, New York City refuses to do the program. And the mayor didn't do anything, and nobody did anything. Richard Reed, who was the head of the Education Department of New York State, said, we want you to have the program, but we can't make them do it. And we had, you know, talked about the numbers of kids and how so they, they all eat lunch in school, or lots of kids eat lunch in school. And here we are in the summer, and there is no school. There's, there was right. very little of uh, anything. And the next thing we knew, the Board of Education again said no way. Evelina blew up and she just said, what are you talking about? The State Department of Education can't tell a place to go feed kids? And so he said, I'll try again. And the next thing we knew was a couple of days later, the phone rang and it was for Evelina. She took the call from this hotshot. He said, they won't do it. We can't make them do it. They're not doing it. And we were very upset. And we said, we're not going to stop yelling about this. It's outrageous. Whatever. You get the point. So uh, he, he calls back again and says, we have a proposal for you. They won't run the program. You run it. And we were like, what? never did anything like that. We weren't producing food. We were talking about existing programs. First of all, we really couldn't believe this conversation. So we said, uh, Evelyn said, I'll call you back. <laughs> she called me in. <laughs> and a couple of other people said, you're not going to believe this. Yeah. It was like everybody was, are you crazy? What do they even mean? So once we realized that this was a serious offer, I believe it was about $3 million, so, which is unheard of. I mean, that they would give UBP in order to run this citywide. We were going to just say no, and that was it. And, and I think it was me that said, well, why don't we find out what it would take to do something like this? It meant making thousands of sandwiches right. every day, having trucking, etc. 
Yeah, the whole infrastructure. It's a it's yeah. you're starting a, from production to delivery to you know getting the food into kids' hands. It's so it's so yeah. many steps. And also, the schools were not going to work with us. So you know you had to have a, you have to find a replacement for where the kids normally would be going. We well, I guess we were not. Because <laughs> I was so intrigued by this. Truthfully, Quinn, if I had known what was going to happen, I'm not sure I could have said right. it. Yes. And I became like the main person. And so after focusing solely on PS149 in the Bronx, this citywide job fell to Kathy. New York City would be the first and only major U.S. city to leave its summer meals program entirely up to nonprofit support. First, she had to get a warehouse. She found one and in the process found a food supply company that she had worked with prior named ARA, which is now called Aramark. They set her up with contracts to buy milk and juice and sandwich supplies and fruit. They showed her how to get equipment, how to rent trucks instead of buy them, and gave UBP the confidence to run this program with very little prep time. They only had six weeks to prepare. They quickly called together a meeting with all the groups they knew all over the city. Will you help us? Each group would host the lunch and be in charge of unloading the trucks and getting them into the refrigerators. They signed up and funded 200 groups in all five boroughs. We actually went out to see all of the sites to make sure that they were okay and it wasn't crazy. But we did, we knew them, but we never knew them this way. Right. So UBP not only became more well-known, but it was like a miracle. All these children had meals. Uh, we hired basically their parents. Next, she negotiated with Aramark that they would have to hire the entire warehouse and trucking staff from the South Bronx, creating 400 jobs for community members. Evelina even went down the street to the neighborhood gangs, the Ghetto Brothers and the Savage Skulls. She walked right up to them and offered them jobs, and they said yes. The production plant ran 24 hours a day with 300 workers in eight-hour shifts. They paid $4 an hour when minimum wage was only $1.85. And by July, they were putting out 50,000 healthy meals a day. By August, as the program expanded, almost 200,000 meals a day. All across New York City. And Kathy was doing it at 52 cents apiece. And it worked. And it was pretty amazing. We took a risk, and it turned out we were right. It was the beginning of my really learning about the food business. Would you say that um, there's a quality to UBP and Evelina and Ellen and yourself um, that one of the greatest qualities about all of you is your ability to kind of not know how big the undertaking is, like not know your own limitations and just kind of say yes to things that you, if you knew how scary they were, you would never say yes to them. That's but a lot of things. Right, but that's a really wonderful quality in people. It's almost as an asset to being um, confident in yourself and also ignorant <laughs> of your limitations. 
The summer meals program would continue, but this time the school system would have much more oversight, say that they could do it better. And many, many years later, there would be calls that there was mass corruption and stealing from the system by sponsors all over the city. But UBP started something that really helped people. And before the pandemic, when Kathy was doing a talk with some other leaders in the community, someone raised their hand and remembered this program that very first year. She said, when was this? Wow. And it turns out that her mother was one of the people who were, ran the program in, in Brooklyn and their wow. community. And now this is, what, 50, 60 years later? And she yeah. said, even the milk was cold. I, I was studying the two And this woman just, you know, my mother thought this was the greatest thing that we ever did, that they ever did. She just knew that in her community they got this, and it was great. Yeah. I love that. She would go on to leave UBP in 1973 to run District 1, a neighborhood on Manhattan's Lower East Side and the first to do an overhaul of their school lunch program. Then, as Reagan came into office and austerity measures loomed on the horizon, she had her biggest idea yet. How could you offset the budget cuts that were coming down the pipeline and ensure New Yorkers could eat? We'll create the country's largest food bank, of course. What started the food bank was 1980 election. We knew what Reagan was about to do. Ronald Reagan's people literally published, this is what they're doing on the first day, and this is what we're doing on the second day. You had to be stupid not to, if you were interested in organizing, to look at what are they planning. Uh And it seemed to a couple of us that poor people were going to be in such trouble that we had to plan ahead and figure out something. And that's why we developed the food bank. And it is now the biggest food bank in the United States. But there was one other food bank when we started it. I didn't wow. even know what it was. I mean, honestly, right. I said, what do you mean a food bank? In the final episode of this three-part series, we talk to Kathy about the creation of the nation's largest food bank. We also dive deeper into what she calls her activist genealogy, the other groups that were working at this time, and the work that continues today. I hope you join us.